This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. Good morning. <laughs> so this is our fourth day of Sashin. And whether you've been here for one day or four days, we've all been traversing this path together. Being silent and still and actively watching the movements of the mind and the movements of the body and everything in between, whatever that is. This is the practice of studying the other dependent. We've been studying it all along. And for years at San Francisco Zen Center, I remember pestering various teachers who talked about enlightenment. And I said, I want to talk about delusion. <laughs> Let's talk about delusion. And um, yeah, like let's unpack what delusion looks like and how we get hooked in delusion. And I find that this practice of studying the Yogacara school is a, an excellent method for opening ourselves up to look at what happens in these transformations of consciousness. In particular, seeing the the hijinks, is that a word? The shenanigans, <laughs> the machinations of our, our friend Manas, the discriminating consciousness. In particular, how it appropriates what it finds in Alaya and constructs a self to then get offended at people and in love with people and grasping at this and clinging to that and it thinks of it, it appropriates what's happening in Alaya and says, that's me. So this is us studying our delusion, seeing this unfold. And if we're really paying attention, we can see it coming, the self arising, right? It's like a big truck in the distance, closer and closer from the horizon until it you know, runs us over. <laughs> and then we're reeling in this delusive state, which we may not know is delusion until later. Or maybe we even know it. Okay, there's a part of us that sees this is delusion, and yet, here I am yelling, <laughs> or whatever it is, having a reaction. Even though there may be a part of us that still is kind of aware, oh, this is just my story playing out. This is a familiar story. This must have its roots in Alaya. So today I'm going to uh, read, I want to re-read again the 30 verses with a new translation. This is probably my favorite translation because it's wordy. <laughs> what I mean by that is that it, it, it has lots of explanations with, built within it. It doesn't kind of assume you know what is meant by this and that. So, it's way taught. Flip lots of pages to read this. 
concepts of Atman and dharmas do not imply the existence of a real Atman and real dharmas, but are merely fictitious constructions produced by numerous causes. Because of this, all varieties of phenomenal appearances and qualities arise. The phenomena of Atman and dharmas are all mental representations based on the manifestation and transformation of consciousness. Consciousness capable of unfolding or manifesting themselves may be grouped in three categories. One, the consciousness whose fruits, i.e. retribution, mature at varying times, i.e. the eighth or storehouse consciousness or alaya vijnana. Number two, the consciousness that cogitates or deliberates, i.e. the seventh or thought center consciousness, or manas. And three, the consciousness that perceives and discriminates between spheres of objects, i.e. the sixty or sense center consciousness, or mano-vijnana, and the five sense consciousnesses. The first is the alaya-vijnana. It is also called vipaka-vijnana, meaning retributive consciousness or fruit consciousness, and sarva-bija-kavijnana, it's a mouthful, the consciousness that carries within it all the bijas or seeds. It, belong, it brings to fruition all seeds, the effects, i.e., the effects of good and evil deeds. It is impossible to comprehend completely Number one, what it holds and receives. Number two, its place or its locality. And three, its power of perception and discrimination. It is at all times associated with five mental attributes, namely mental contact, attention, sensation, conception, and volition. But it is always associated only with the sensation of indifference. Meaning, again, this is going back to Pat's question, the sensation of indifference is the feeling tone, so positive, negative, neutral, so the indifference. Alaya doesn't have an agenda. It belongs to the non-defiled, non-defined moral species. The same is true in the case of mental contact and so forth. It is perpetually manifesting itself like a torrent and is renounced i.e., it ceases to be called alaya in the state of arhatship, the state of the saint who enters nirvana. Next comes the evolving, the second evolving consciousness. This consciousness is called manas. It manifests itself with the alaya vijnana as its basis and its support, and it takes that consciousness as its object. It has the nature and character of cogitation or intellection. It is always accompanied by four kleshas, or vexing passions, sources of affliction and delusion, namely self-delusion, self-belief, together with self-conceit and self-love. It is also accompanied by the other mental associates, namely mental contact and so forth, attention, sensation, conception, and volition. It belongs to the defiled, non-defined moral species, neither good nor bad, but defiled. It is active in the datu or bumi, 
in which the sentient being is being born and to which he or she is bound. It ceases to exist at the stage of arhatship, in the meditation of annihilation, the state of complete extinction of thought and other mental qualities, and on the supramundane path. Next comes the third, evolving consciousness, which is divided into six categories of discrimination. Their nature and character consist of the perception and discrimination of spheres of objects. They are good, bad, and neither good nor bad. Meaning, it depends. They are associated with the universal chaitas, the special chaitas, the good chaitas, the klesas, the vexing passions. So chaitas are just mental qualities. Vexing passions are mental qualities. The upakleshas, the secondary vexing passions or mental qualities. And the aniyatas, the indeterminate mental associates. They are all associated with the three sensations, joy, sorrow, and indifference. First, universal chaitas mental contact, and so forth, attention, sensation, conception, and volition. Next, the special chaitas, that is, desire, resolve, memory, meditation, and discernment. The objects perceived by the special chaitas are particular and varied. The good chaitas refer to belief, a sense of shame, a sense of integrity, the three roots of non-covetousness, and so forth non-anger and non-delusion, zeal or diligence, composure of mind, vigilance, equanimity, and harmlessness or non-injury. The klesas, klesas are covetousness, anger, delusion, conceit, doubt, and false views. The upakleshas, the secondary vexing passions, are fury, enmity, concealment or hypocrisy, vexation, envy, parsimony, deception, duplicity or fraudulence with harmfulness, pride, shamelessness, non-integrity, agitation or restlessness with torpid-mindedness, unbelief, indolence, idleness, forgetfulness, distraction, and non-discernment or thoughtlessness. The indeterminate mental qualities refer to remorse, drowsiness, reflection, and investigation. These two couples can be of two kinds. Independence upon the root consciousness, i.e. alaya, the eighth, the five consciousnesses of the senses manifest themselves in accordance with various causes and conditions, sometimes together, sometimes separately just as waves manifest them in dependence upon conditions in the water. But the sixth consciousness manifests itself at all times, except for beings born into the heavenly world without thought, these are the celestial beings, except also for those in the two mindless samadhis, two forms of meditation in which there is no more activity of thought, and to those who are in states of stupor or unconsciousness. The various consciousnesses manifest themselves in what seem to be two divisions, perception and the object of perception. Because of this, Atman and the dharmas do not exist. For this reason, it is mere consciousness. From the consciousness which contains all bijas, the seeds, 
the Alaya Vijnana, such and such evolution or transformation takes place through the force of the mutual cooperation of the actual dharmas, such and such kinds of distinction are engendered. Owing to the habit energy of various previous deeds, together with the habit energy of the two apprehensions, as previous retribution, karma of previous existences, is exhausted, succeeding retribution, maturing in subsequent existences, is produced. So this is, again, going back to what you were saying, Bruce, this cause, being a force of a cause, as well as being a fruit or an effect. Because of such and such imaginations, such and such things are imagined, i.e. conceived of by the imagination. What is conceived by this imagination has no nature of its own. The self-nature, which results from dependence on others, paratantra, this is the other dependent nature, consists of discriminations produced by causes and conditions. The difference between the nature of ultimate reality, or the thoroughly established, accomplished, parinisvana, and the nature of dependence on others, paratantra, or other dependent nature, is that the former is eternally free from the parikapita nature, the conception, the imagined nature, or the conception by imagination of the latter, that is, the other dependent. Thus, the nature of ultimate reality and the nature of dependence on others are neither different nor non-different. Just as impermanence is neither different nor non-different from impermanent dharmas, one does not perceive the nature of dependence on others as long as one has not perceived that of ultimate reality. On the basis of the three natures of existence are established the three natures of non-existence. For this reason, the Buddha preached with a secret intention that all dharmas have no nature of their own. The first is non-existence as regards characteristics since they are but products of the imagination. The second is non-existence as regards the innate nature of origination, since it is the result of discrimination. The last is non-existence as regards the supreme truth about all dharmas, which is far removed from the first nature of mere imagination, in which things are believed to be a real Atman and real dharmas. This supreme truth about all dharmas is also buddhatata, genuine thusness, absolute reality, because it is immutable, remaining constantly thus in its nature. That is the true nature of mere consciousness. As long as the consciousness of wisdom has not arisen, to seek to abide in the state of vijnapti matrata, or mind only, the attachment and drowsiness arising from the two apprehensions cannot as yet be suppressed and obliterated. As long as one places some thing before him or herself and taking it as an object declares that it is the nature of mere consciousness, he or she is not really residing in the state of mere consciousness because they are in possession of some thing. If, in perceiving the sphere of objects, wisdom no longer conceives any idea of the object, then that wisdom is in the state of vijnapti matrata, or mind only. 
consciousness only. Because both the object to be apprehended and the act of apprehending by consciousness are absent. Without perception, inconceivable and incomprehensible. This is transcendental, supra-mundane wisdom because of the abandonment of the crude dross of the two barriers of self and other, inner transformation into perfect wisdom is achieved. This is the pure datu, the undefiled storehouse realm, which is inconceivable, incomprehensible, good, and eternal. When one is in a state of blissfulness with one's emancipated body, this is the law of great silence, the dharmakaya, realized by the great Buddha Shakyamuni. Okay, so you've now heard four translations if you've been here for four days of this 30 verses of Vasubandhu. Yesterday we, we touched on the three natures. So we have, we've talked about the eight consciousnesses and how they interact, how self is born, We've talked about the three natures of all phenomenon and how each phenomenon has an aspect of these three natures from the imagined, completely imaginary, like the magician's trick, the other dependent, which is completely in dependence on everything else. So another way of putting this is to say this, for example, what is this? Clock. Yes. It's a clock. What is, its, what is its true nature? Is there a true clock nature that this thing participates in? This entity of clockness. What does that mean? <laughs> that it's made up of all these little parts, and if you uh, take them apart, they're not clocks. So what, like, thinking broadly, you're on, the, you're on a good track there. What is this clock, what may, went into making this clock? How did this clock arise? Just about everything went into it. Mm. Just about everything went into it. Yeah, the scientists that designed plastic and electric, all the electronics and all the history of electronics. And history of time. So this clock is actually made up of non-clock elements. There's no essential nature to, of clockness. So in some sense, you could say maybe Plato was wrong. <laughs> you also yeah. not as sort of some intrinsic property, but also as something that's primarily um, through its utility. So function, a functional thing. definition. Yeah, yeah. Function. that's conventional. That's purely a great example of a conventional description, right? It's not a thing in and of itself that exists from its own side without any adherence or, or connection to anything else, right? It exists purely dependent on all these other things. And it functions within our conventional system. If the clock had a 26-hour day, we wouldn't be able to use it. <laughs> Unless, you know, we were on some other planet that had a 26-hour day, right? Or we were very creative. Yeah, or, or very creative, right. Okay, so that's what's meant by other dependent. The thoroughly established nature... What is that? 
tell you. You can't tell you. Yeah, you can't say. But we can try. What would we, what would anything that we said about it be? Concept. Yeah. Mere concept. Mere concept. Right. Except when we imbue a reality to the clock, a, a depend, a, a, an independent self nature. Right. When we do that, which we do all the time, I think that's one thing that to stress is that we do this all the time. We think of it, whether we realize it or not, we think of the clock as having a, a true nature of clockness. Right? I mean, think of the end of Psalms and where you're like, why isn't it time? Why is it doing this to me? <laughs> yeah, that's a great example. <laughs> the dawn must have the wrong time. <laughs> Surely this period is going on longer. Right. So the thoroughly established nature, as Vasubandhu describes it, is simply the other dependent nature which includes everything right it's the other dependent nature absent with minus the imagined nature we put on it well that's one example of the imagined nature i mean we're talking about things like that time exists yes yeah therefore that's something that we impute to clockness as part of its the clockness itself is the imagined nature that's why I said earlier that I can't tell you. I'm trying to give a clever Zen answer, but just testing my understanding, which was that it's the stuff that we talk about, except without all this baggage. Yeah, yeah. It's the stuff that what we talk about is pointing to. Right. right. So, are you saying that anything concrete that we can say about this must be imagined? No, I'm saying it's conventionally just it's conventionally true. Which is not to say it's so not true. Um, that the clock tells time in 26 hours. That's not true in conventional the conventional world. There's lots of things that are not true sure, in the conventional world. Right. Basically, everything we say in the realm of science is a conventional description. Now, of course, they weren't talking about. I mean, for things that are like true by definition. I'm not sure that that really. I mean, even things like, you know, water, H2O boils at, you know, 100 degrees Celsius. Right? You can say, well, that's just that's just how it is. But that's you know, we're not looking at the fact that it, that's a certain at a certain pressure, right? Right. So I guess what I'm, what I'm hearing is that the fully established nature is the other dependent nature minus the imagination. Yes. Sense, right? like Absolutely. Things, right? Yes. So how does one know when all of the imagined nature has been approved? Like, how could one possibly like get at the discerning capability to do that? Buddhas do not necessarily notice that they are Buddhas. You can't. You can't know because as soon as you are knowing, you are stuck in duality. What does it look like? Yes. This is a. This is. Maybe I'll turn to some Zen stories now, unless there are other questions. Yes, Nick. Is the function part of the imagined nature or part of the interdependent? What do you think? It seems like it's part of the interdependent until we recognize the function and then the fact of the function becomes an imagined part of it. Yeah, exactly. 
So this system of philosophy is not denying a lot of what we take to be real at all. What it's denying is that it's really real. You know the expression, only don't know? Or Suzuki Roshi's not always so? You can apply this to anything. Do we really know? Any, anything that we think of, if it's not thinking in the present, it's already abstraction. If it has anything to do with the past or anything to do with the future, it's an abstraction. Right. It's not our bare perception. Is it in the, uh, in the uh, Trust in Mind, which is a great, yeah. The, in, in the Trust in Mind poem, when Sengsan says, don't be afraid of senses, of the senses. What do you think that's coming from? When he says, you know, he asks us not to be afraid of sensing, our sense consciousnesses. Who's he talking to? I imagine. Yeah, I imagine he's talking to the meditators who think that the way to enlightenment is to shut off your senses and to not be, to shut things down. Right? And he's saying, no, don't be afraid of your senses. Don't believe your senses. <laughs> but that gives us, you know, that's ramping it up. Do you need to believe something in order to respond or uh, in an appropriate manner in the universe? If someone throws you a ball and you catch it and you have, what is it called, blindsight? You don't know that you're catching the ball. But your hand does. Your hand catches it. What's going on there? We can go all we can go into the <laughs> neurological disorders to, to tease apart all kinds of things with this, but we don't have time <laughs> for that. What's time? Yeah, what's time? We can just our our, our knees will tell us <laughs> what time it is. <laughs> please, um, you know, if you need to move, please move. So here, and one, uh, are you all familiar with the koan? Uh, where Yunyan asks, why does Avalokiteshvara have so many hands and eyes? Anyone familiar with know that poem? It's not the poem you got. That's the only poem you got? Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to read the poem. Yunyan asks Dawu, what does the bodhisattva of great compassion do with so many hands and eyes? Dawu says, it's like someone reaching back for the pillow at night. Yunyan says, I understand. And Dawu says, how do you understand? Yunyan said, all over the body is hands and eyes. And Dawu says, you've said a lot there, but you've only gotten 80%. <laughs> Just so you know, nobody ever gets more than 80%. It's like that by like design. Yunyan said, what about you, elder brother? Dawu said, throughout the body is hands and eyes. So what is this Avalo, this, this description of Avalokiteshvara, the bodhisattva of compassion, who has a thousand hands and eyes to respond to suffering beings, in all the myriad ways. I mean, there's also a different, you know, there's these beautiful statues with Avalokiteshvara with these thousands, a th thousand hands, all holding a different object. 
for all the different ways that people need assistance, right? How is this like someone reaching back for the pillow at night? Imagine yourself in bed and you have a neck cramp. It's a reflexive action. It's a reflexive, what, say more. Um, there's a sort of like implicit mental model that doesn't really need to be queried, right? Like the pillow is reached for as almost a sort of autonomous, like I need to shift, I need to make myself comfortable, I need to adjust something. And there's not really a long conscious process about where the pillow is and how to do it, right? It's, um, it's almost automatic. Yeah. Maybe intuitive. Intuitive? It's not, it's not deliberate. It's Non-deliberative? Pure activity. Pure activity. Or in pure intention. Pure intention as opposed to un impure? Well, yeah, like you were saying, there's no, you're not thinking it through. You just. Do you have to assert existence or non-existence in order to do that action? No. You can go. We can go back intellectually and say, with our with our big brains, we can go in and say, well, the person must have had a concept about themselves and about the pillow and about sleep and about necks and you know, and you can keep going, right? But that's just an abstraction. Is there any cogitation involved in reaching for the pillow? That's why you chose that particular thing, because you're kind of asleep. Yeah. Right. That's the intention of this story. Right. I, <laughs> <laughs> I want to go back to the, the text and in particular looking at this this these verses towards the end. This path of practice, this is the, where the practice aspect comes in. Verse 26. As long as consciousness does not terminate in mere concept, so long will the dispositions for the twofold grasping, self and other, not cease. This is grasping itself and other won't cease as long as your consciousness doesn't end in mere concept. What is that saying? It had one too many negatives. Yeah. <laughs> How about if I say, only when consciousness does terminate in mere concept will the disposition for the twofold graspings cease. like this idea of putting a thing in fr a thing in front of, in front of yourself and saying this is a thing right that's extra that's beyond the pillow reaching for the pillow that's setting up a thing and only when when you set up a thing as in the Shinshin Ming like what subject becomes subject because of the object object is object because of the subject this bifurcation into two distinct things is very useful it's not like we're going to get rid of it, so you don't need to worry about that. <laughs> I think that's one of the big things when we hear this and we feel like a lot of doubt about it. There's, a, there's actually, you can feel the self emerge, right? What the hell? <laughs> what is this talking about? You know, what about this? You know, there's an energy, and it's not that that energy 
needs to go either. Actually, nothing needs to change in a sense. However, when you terminate in mere concept, what does that look like? Anyone have, any, have a feeling for what it means to or what it would feel like to terminate in mere concept? Just experiencing the thing? I mean, just experiencing the very things? That's going even a little further. But yes, that's, that's a good start. Does it have to do with like when you look at that tree out there, you kind of are that tree? Yeah, I think that's going a little further than Vasubandhu is as well in this. Termination in mere concept. Let me see if I can actually... Um, what is mere concept? That's again the Yogacara? Or mind only? No, mere concept is just what it says it is. It's M-E-R-E, right? Mere, yeah, M-E-R-E. I'm going to read a description of this that I think might be helpful. In terms of this mere concept and terminating. To try to stop that activity of the mind, the activity of the mind, when you're thinking about the future while you're making plans, if you try and stop the activity of mind, that's not terminating in mere concept. It's saying, these are real thoughts, therefore I should stop them. It's okay to let the mind go down these paths, these trains of conceptualization, if every single moment of the way you realize mere concept, mere concept, mere concept, not ultimate reality, ultimate reality, mm -hmm. ultimate reality. How can, you get careful, how can you carefully get yourself in the position where you're not going to run away anymore, where you're not going to waver? As long as consciousness does not terminate in mere concept, so long will the dispositions of the twofold grasping not cease. So long as your mind doesn't stop, when you think of the future, you're going to grasp it, you're going to make it real, you will not be able to resist making it substantial. Any speculation beyond immediate sense experience, any speculation about anything we know about, imprisons us in mere concept. As long as you don't realize that you are the, in the prison of mere concept, that's all you can see. It's not reality, it's just a concept, and that's the prison that you live in. That's the cave you live in. As long as you don't realize that, you cannot resist the inclination to make it into a reality, into a substance. Then it's your baby. You become totally enmeshed in it. <laughs> Letting the mind terminate in mere concept means you realize, I am totally trapped in mere concept. I am in this cave. And while it's very enticing, it's not reality. When you've established, when you become established in the state of mere concept, when the exhaustive search for something which inherently exists is abandoned, being established in such a state, then you cannot grasp anything. So being trapped in mere concept is not something you're going to get away from. It's not bad to be trapped in mere concept. 
it's only bad if you're trapped in mere concept, but you think you're trapped in reality. If you're trapped in mere concept and you say nearness, mere concept, that's very different, right? You're having a reaction and you, to something that's happening. And you find yourself going through this, you know, uh, bodily sensations. Maybe you're enraged. Maybe you're sad. Maybe you're furious. Maybe you're totally smitten. Right? You're being dragged along. And you're fully in this whirl of emotions and feelings and sensations and perceptions. To be able to say, ah, this is mere concept, doesn't mean that those things go away. It's almost like they've been bracketed in, we're, we're in a cave. The sights are the way they are. But I'm not going to go further than that and say, this is ultimate reality. But we do all the time. That's what gets us into trouble. If we can stay in the realm of mere concept and accept that what's, everything that we believe and think and say and do is within this realm of mere concept, of mind only, as opposed to reality out there as it really is. Huge difference, right? Psychologically speaking. Yeah. I was just thinking of a way to practice this, maybe, is to go to a movie and, like, every moment, everything that happens, you just remember, this is a movie. This is a movie. Yeah, and you can really enjoy your, your own stories, right? But knowing, knowing that they're stories. Yeah. Could you go to a movie and try to watch the movie screen? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. yeah, exactly. Can I suggest the movie The Matrix? <laughs> so, but then, sorry, go ahead, Tim. Or Bruce. Well, it, would it be reasonable to say that terminating in mere concept is you, you're kind of hanging a sign on it, right? So this is a concept that you don't try to do anymore. Now, this gets to the next line. Okay. The next line is so verse 26 is as long as consciousness does not terminate in mere concept so long will these dispositions not cease. And the next line indeed one who on account of one's grasping were to place something before him or herself saying this is mere concept they won't stop at nearness. Meaning, you can use this process to just create more objects that you then believe in. Mm -hmm. So it's not even that you stop and say, this is mere concept. It's actually, you, the stopping happens before then. Because you can create, put a thing in front of yourself, and psh, immediately self and object are created. How is that going to do anything for the twofold grasping? Right? So it's even before saying, this is mere concept, it's like being really able to see your own stories as stories. Most of the time we go around with a narrative of how thing the world is, right? Can you imagine if we just didn't have that? We would not be able to function at all. Now, imagine that we do the exact same thing. We go around with our stories but we say, yeah, this is, my, this is a story. It doesn't work so well when you tell other people that's your story. 
true. <laughs> you know, and the person saying it, it's like, well, that's your story. <laughs> yes, Tim. I wonder, because this has come up a lot in, in practice over more than a lifetime about this, if, if we lived this way, we wouldn't be able to do anything at all. Mm. And I don't, I, I wonder, if we lived which way? If we lived in a kind of um, no, non-story if we never had any stories yeah. or concepts. Yeah. And, and I wonder if the koan of reaching for the pillow in the night mm. is speaking to something. It's not like nothing would happen or that you wouldn't right. be able to interact at all. There's a kind of naturalness to kind of pre-thought or something. Right, right. <clears throat> and this, I think what this is getting at, and maybe you discussed this in your class. How many people were in the class? Uh, the yeah, so more than half of you were in this class, the Shinshin Ming class. My imagination about the class is that one of the things that you talked about what is trust? Tr this whole question of trust and faith, but more than that, what is trust in mind? What is trust in mind? What, is, what mind are we talking about? Big mind. The mind right? that knows where the pillow is. <laughs> <laughs> right, are we trusting in the small, the, the mind that is just like what's the four pot shots? At the, I mean, you know what I'm talking about, this, this kind of background noise mind that grumbles and has opinions and, you know, all the preferences for and against and, right? It's not that mind that Sangsan is urging trust in. What would it look like to trust in Buddha nature or in a big mind? What would that look like? Oftentimes, I think people, when they hear that, they think, well, I couldn't be a, you know, uh, a lawyer. I couldn't be a professor. I couldn't be, I couldn't do any, I couldn't even drive a truck. Like, I couldn't do any of those things because you need to, you know, be trained in this way and have this, you know, all this stuff that comes up with it. You can't have any agendas. In a, in a talk that I gave and it also came up in the class I, I kept coming back to um, Suzuki Roshi's uh, breathe, uh, swinging. the swinging door and so there's like breathing in there's this sort of limitless world breathing out there's this limitless world and there's this swinging door and that um, even in kind of complete Integration with reality, there's still the swinging door. There's something about that that I kept coming back to, mm. and it's the same with the pillow. Or, mm. and it's sort of my mm -hmm. question: like maybe we would know how to drive the bus in um, in a kind of non-dual state. Or yeah. Something. Anyone with Tim on this? Uh, you mean as a passenger? No. <laughs> 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 I was thinking, well, maybe we wouldn't have that same economic system. Um, we wouldn't have. We wouldn't have the same similar economic systems. Maybe some of these things would be different. Maybe a truck would be electronic device. Uh, oh. You know, you use for a different purpose. Yeah, yeah. That's a that's an interesting exploration of like what would the world look like if it was run by Buddhas. Mm -hmm. well, that looks like we would have tools. Like I mean, tools are. 
conceptual, like, I'm going to use this to do this other thing. I don't know. I think that all kinds of creatures that you would think of that not don't have, like, self-awareness use tools. Nick? Um, this might be just wordplay, but maybe we trust the small mind to drive the bus. <laughs> Don't give the bus to the angry small man. <laughs> Yeah, so when we chanted this morning the Genjo Koan, there's this segment where it talks about the myriad things. Sentient beings, what does it go? Bring. When you set forth to realize versus let them realize you. Yes, yes. The distinction between coming forward and experiencing the myriad things versus allowing the myriad things to come forward and experience themselves, right? Huge difference, right? Who's driving the bus? Is it the myriad things, or are you, you know, Marco Vogel driving the bus, I'm driving the bus, you know, my driving record, my, you know, me, 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 me. Or is it the myriad things come forward and experience themselves? Now, of course, we can always get into this um, hypotheticals, and the what-if stories of like, well, we don't really want people walking around driving buses if they're not going to take personal responsibility, right? Because personal responsibility is a very useful conventional designation. Yeah, I think it gets into really tricky territory pretty quickly, right? Because if we get into this sort of like diffuse, you know, disassociated, I am just a manifestation of the myriad things, how could I, quote unquote, ever be responsible for anything? So I mean, volition has to come into play or something. Volition is definitely in play from a conventional description, yes. Isn't that the second turn, though? It's like Nick getting eaten by the saber-tooth? I mean, if you like say, oh, we're all one, and I thought I'd just get eaten by the saber-tooth because we're the same anyway. Yeah, I, right? I mean, I feel, yeah. I feel sort of the same way about the trust in the universe thing, right? It's like, trust the universe to what? Kill you? It will. It will. It's in a horrible way. So, like, there's, you know, there's not work for that, right? There's not work for that. Right. It's like, I don't need to. What does that do for the reduction of suffering? Well, yeah, in terms of the reduction of, so getting back to what this whole enterprise is about, <laughs> right, which is not to lay metaphysical claims on the universe, it's actually to back away from those, <laughs> it's to alleviate suffering. And what allows you to alleviate suffering? In your own experience, whether it's your own suffering or other people's suffering, what allows us to alleviate suffering? How? But if you let go of all concepts, including the concepts, I'm going to play devil's advocate. But if we let go of concepts of suffering and well-being, then how on earth are we going to be able to respond appropriately? What do you mean by letting go? Well, I mean, I yeah. What do you mean by letting go? No, I'm curious. Yeah. Are, are you talking about rejecting it and saying concepts don't exist, or just saying, "Well, let's just not worry about this right now because here's this person that needs help, and I can help." And you're not, that, that's even more. That's more, saying more than that. That's saying is. more than would yeah. actually happen. But it's it's 
it's reacting towards conventionally other things as you would towards your arm gets hurt. You don't go, huh, should I take care of that? <laughs> that arm over there, it's like this hand's going, I'm, I'm okay, it's not mine. Exactly, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It doesn't, it just, it does the thing. Right, something good. It does yeah. the thing, and I think the difference may be, or a distinction I was popped into my head was possibly the difference between acting upon and acting with. Say more. Well, acting upon, upon is, is you're enhancing that sense of separation, self and other. I will help you, other person, because I'm good and I yes. want to feel better about myself or you're annoying or whatever. I'm going to do this thing as opposed to reaching for the pill in the dark or trusting in intuition and just like, you're like, okay, that, you know, that voice you can hang on for a second. <laughs> I got something to do. You just do it. Just like, do it. Have you yeah. ever found yourself in a situation where you're not, you don't think? this needs to be done, right. you, you just see yourself doing it. Exactly. Right. So you have this example of like saving the drowning person in the, in the river, right? Do you hesitate? Do you think, oh, that person looks like a friend of mine, so they're not going to save them more. That person looks like my third grade teacher I needed. Pretend I didn't see that. No! <laughs> 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 You had your hand up. I was just like thinking about this idea of reaching for the pillow in the dark, and that sounds great. But what about reaching for the cheeseburger in the dark, or, <laughs> or reaching for the handgun in the dark, or the heroin needle? In the dark? Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's a good question. What is the difference between those? One is, I would say, has a non-selfish desire to help. And the other may be a coming from a selfish inclination to a desire place of stemming from greed, hate, or delusion. So the cheeseburger in the middle of the night, probably greed, probably. But you know, we are greedy. So we might find ourselves reaching for the cheeseburger. And then we, we uh, like with everything, we endure the consequences. Same thing with reaching for the gun in a fit of anger, right? We endure the consequences of that. Well, to, to, to mix the models, then, could this possibly be something like giving Manas the day off? <laughs> because you, you've got your sense consciousnesses and you've got Aliyah, and yeah, they're yeah. just like uh-huh. doing their thing and interacting. It's like, it's the cogitations. The, yeah, yeah. We don't have control over. Manus being on or off. Manus well, is always okay, on. But giving it time. But I'm saying, isn't Manus what's it's the? Yes, it is. It's yeah. messy. Getting in the way. Manus is the one that's creating the self out oh, of the conditions. Yeah. Let me just back up for a second and actually go back to this idea of these the the way that reality, the so-called reality, things that we think of as being where we have access to reality with our you know, narrow vision of the of visible light and with our range of frequencies that we hear and all those things, right? We, we think we can see it all. And we have instruments which make us even more, like, robust, right? We have instruments that can measure all of these things, which, you know, are just you know, extensions of ourselves, right? But in terms of these consciousnesses and the, the, what is called the transformation, he keeps talking about this transformation of consciousness, which is different from like, 
a transformation, which when Thich Nhat Hanh calls the transformation at the base, talking about how do you purify this system. But before we talk about purification, just what's going on with this transformation? <clears throat> okay, so as sense data arises and enters into our awareness, we become cognizant or aware of sense data. The first transformation is the transformation, and this is not in any order. The first transformation of consciousness is of some input arises, some stimulus. It's, it doesn't come in by itself. It pulls with it all of the seeds from Alaya Vijnana, this backdrop of all previous dispositions, all habits, all beliefs and thoughts and mental formations, all of your experiences go into how you will experience this phenomenon that's arising. All of it comes up with it. You can't get away from that. You can't not be yourself in that sense of conventional self, right? We have histories, we have backgrounds with all kinds of things that have happened to us and ways that we've reacted and ways that we've made amends and all that is there. So that's the first thing. When you have a stimulus arising, it comes in with this pulling all of the web of a lie with it. The second way that transformation gets that the, the transformation happens is through manas. Perception arises, something is perceived. And what does manas do with it? Makes sense of it. More than that, I think the mana vijnana makes sense of it. Right, it puts it, so that's the, th the third transformation of consciousness, is the way that the sense fields work, right? So manas, this defiled, appropriating consciousness, how does it transform consciousness? When something appears in your visual field, for example, or your whatever, through the sense doors, and something appears, what does manas do to it? Yes, the key part being me. How does this affect me? Right? So Aliyah doesn't make a me, but it, all the bijas, all the seeds are there, all the energies are there, the habit energies, right? The dispositions, the inclinations, those are all part of what's being tugged at when, a, when something arises in stimulus. As it goes through the transformation of manas, it goes through a selfishness filter. <laughs> think of these as filters, right? You have this bare perception that we think of, that we're accessing. And yet, this bare perception has to go through these gates before we experience them, right? It has to go through our particular eye apparatus and nose apparatus, all these organs, right? So for example, I might be colorblind. I won't have the same sense experience that someone who is not colorblind would have. I have my manas, which is gonna put everything in terms of how it affects me, right? Because that's what it does. That's what manas does. It creates the self. And then it's also going to go through the non-self-making alaya, which is just all the dispositions and all the, um, the seeds that have been planted and watered. And, you know, some of them are pretty thick, you know, jungles. And <laughs> other ones may just be, like, very nascent. It's like this little wisp of a seed of a plant, right? So in this way, everything 
comes through these filters, and yet we go around the world not realizing that, oftentimes, right? That's what gets us into trouble, and that's what causes us to create a thing, relate to the thing, get angry with the thing, and then think the thing is real, and then get offended, or get upset, or fall in love, or, you know, whatever it is. Can we plan our next vacation to Spain without doing all of that? I think that's one of the big, big questions that we have, right? Can we plan a vacation? Can we live our lives? Or somehow, is if we terminate in nearness, are we afraid? Another way of putting it, do we not trust in mind? Now, you could say that, like, trusting in mind, you know, well, how am I going to take care of myself as I get older? I need to put money away in my 401k, or, right? Can that all exist without grasping? Yes, that's how mind works. It gives us the tools to take care of ourselves. I mean, the, dis- the which mind? Well, I mean, you know, we go to nature is... is <laughs> I mean, it, would buy that. What? I'm not sure people would buy that it's a big mind that's going to take care of us in the sense of like for, well, plan for our retirement <laughs> or, well, like mean, that, or, or take care of our, our uh, okay. physical well All right. All right. Maybe it will decide that re- you don't need that. Uh, it, okay. I'll drop my statement. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, I guess I'm getting back to what Tim is our bringing up. come from this goodness, you know. I mean. It's an interesting question in the sense that, that um, in, the, in, the, in the conceptual realm of big mind, small mind, that small mind is part of big mind. So yeah. you're right, that big mind is actually it's giving strange. us our small self. Um, and yet all the suffering that comes from being a small self is also kind of being given to us by big mind. Um, so it's an interesting conundrum of being alive. It is an interesting conundrum, right? <laughs> and we can get caught up in... I mean, when we, when we find ourselves getting... Oh, here's the really big, like the, the million-dollar question. When we find ourselves being caught up, what alleviates suffering? <laughs> Sometimes that's going to increase the suffering. What alleviates suffering is the game back to that question. What helps us in being able to reach back for the pillow at night? Compassion. Compassion? What helps us be compassionate? Love. What helps us love? Hate. <laughs> <laughs> Feeling connected in our oneness. Feeling connected? Feeling oneness? Maybe. I think reducing our self-focus. Right. Reducing our self-focus. Perspective problems. Perspective problems, yeah. What is this, let's go, to, in terms of some of these fancy, new-fangled terms we've got, <laughs> what is this pointing to? I'm thinking of it. Which of the three natures? Oh. <laughs> is it pointing to? The other dependent nature. Right? The more that we see ourselves, the more that we move away from seeing ourselves as the center of the universe and, and as separate from everything else, right? 
the more we see that what we call ourselves as being completely interdependent with all things, the more broad our perspective is, the more we see causes and conditions in their flow, the more able we are to respond appropriately to causes and conditions. If we're stuck in a story in our head, are we able to witness or even grok the fact that uh, some, you know, a friend of ours or somebody we don't even know, whoever, is having a hard time? Can we respond to suffering if we're caught up in our own suffering? Sometimes. I think sometimes. I think yeah. For me, sometimes that breaks through. I'm like, and I'm like, oh, whoa, okay. And then I, yes, yeah. yes. And that's really encouraging, right? Sometimes manas and the, the shenanigans of manas they're painful. And pain serves a great function in the system, right? It's pain, actually, and suffering that drive us to practice, right? If I were in a heaven realm, would I have to practice patience, generosity, diligence, right? Would I have to practice these things if I'm in a heaven realm? If everything's going well for me, then, you know, I don't have to practice. Actually, being born as a human being in those six realms is seen as the ideal place to be born. Not the God realm. The God realm is you're only there because of past conditions, and as soon as those run out, guess what? <laughs> and how equipped are you to deal with being in a hell realm when you've been in the God realm? Right? Is a human. After the God realm, you go to the hell realm? Mm. When, when the condition, well, depends. Yeah, depends. Always, always depends. <laughs> um, I wanted to relay two other stories, but I don't think I will have time. I don't have time. But I will read one, one of my favorite koans in the Book of Serenity. And again, it's amazing to me how, how understanding and practice, the understanding and practice and and recognition of some of these things that, that run through Buddhism, run through all of Buddhism, in particular in Zen, that's what I know, know best, how the stuff that we are looking at, once you start looking at things through this particular helpful framework, not version of reality as it is, but a helpful framework, you start noticing it in, ev in other things. So like just looking at koans that I've been very familiar with, Looking at them in the context of studying Yogacara, it's just like, for my own, myself, speaking for myself, it's like, oh, that's what this is talking about. Like when we chant one of our chants um, in the morning, when we chant the Heart Sutra, or we chant the Genja Kon, or Fukanza Zengi, or Self Receiving and Employing Samadhis, trust all these chants, we start to see how this stuff fits together. So this is our, um, from the Book of Serenity. Um, oh, Eric just left. I wonder if he knows that he's not going to be the Soku. I can't. Okay. This is from the Book of Serenity, which is a collection of koans that's uh, probably the, of the collections of koans, this is the one that's most associated with the Soto Zen school. Case 37, Guishan's Active Consciousness. Guishan asked Yangshan, Guishan and Yangshan, just a background note, they're Dharma brothers, 
Guishan asked Yangshan, if somebody suddenly said, all sentient beings just have karmic consciousness, boundless and unclear, with no fundamental to rely on, how would you prove it in experience? Yangshan said, if a monk comes, I call him, hey you. If the monk turns his said, his head, I say, what is it? If he hesitates, I say, not only is their active karmic consciousness boundless and unclear, they have no fundamental to rely on. Guishan says, good. It's better than 80%, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> so, this active karmic consciousness is modest. And so this monk comes walking by, and Yangshan says, hey, you. The monk turns his head. What is that referring to? What does that look like in this system? Does the monk have to have a sense of I, me, and mine to turn their head? It's reaching for the phone. No. There's like a call and a response. Now, when Yangshan says, what is it? Or, what is the self? Then the monk is like, huh? Oh. And then they, you know, they stretch their head or they leave. Right? They, don't, they don't stick around for that one because that's going a little bit further. There's a... Um, I'm going to read this one little section from this. So this is from the treatise on the, uh, the Flower Ornament Sutra, which says that the fundamental affliction of ignorance... Right. Ignorance is specifically refers to something specific in Buddhism. It's the ignorance about self. The treatise on the Flower Ornament Sutra says this fundamental affliction of ignorance is itself the immutable knowledge of the Buddhas. This principle is most profound and mysterious in the extreme, difficult to comprehend. Yunyan said... This is most distinctly clear, easy to understand. At that moment, a boy happened to be sweeping there. Yunnan called to him, and the boy turned his head. Yunnan pointed to him and said, Is this not immutable knowledge? The boy being called to and turning his head, Is this not immutable knowledge? When Yangshan calls a monk and the monk turns his head, that is precisely the situation. Yunnan then asks the boy, what is your Buddha nature? The boy looks around at a loss and left. Yunnan says, is this not fundamental affliction of ignorance? If you can comprehend this, then you become a Buddha immediately. The boy's bewilderment and the monk's hesitation are no, difference, no different. The fundamental affliction of ignorance and the boundless, in unclear active consciousness are also the same. And then there's a verse. One call and he turns his head. Do you know the self or not? Vaguely, like the moon through ivy, a crescent at that. The child of riches, as soon as they fall on the boundless road of destitution, knows such sorrow. I wish we had more time. So for the remainder of today, 
I encourage you to not be fearful of the senses and to allow yourself to question, what is this? And if you put something before yourself, what is it? Mere concept? How do you allow concept to be concept? How do you allow your stories to be stories? See what that does. Try that on. Oh, another story. Oh, another story. Another story. And don't be discouraged by having stories. As long as you know they're stories. The power of them to drag you into samsara is much mitigated by seeing stories as stories. By seeing delusion as delusion. Sentient beings are deluded about realization, but Buddhas are enlightened about what? Delusion. They're enlightened about delusion. Thank you. <laughs>